Hey everyone, welcome to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I will be sitting down in one-on-one, hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this wild little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Gary Goodman. Now, many of you might know Gary as the guy who drives around the island in a red truck with a couple of hockey sticks sticking out the top. But today, we're going to get to find out a lot more about Gary than that. We're going to get to hear stories about what it was like to be on Pender Island in the 80s. Gary's going to tell us about playing in a rock band and flying to gigs in a float plane. And we're also going to get to hear a story about a profound experience that happened to Gary on July 1st last year. I also want to mention that I want to thank Gary for his openness and his honesty in this interview. It was quite something. I really enjoyed doing this interview and speaking with Gary, and I hope you enjoy it too. Here's my interview with Gary Goodman. Hey, welcome, Gary. Thanks, Chris. You know I like to talk. Yes. We, we just had an hour-long conversation before we actually came down here, and it was amazing. Yeah. How are you doing right now? Well, I'm doing well, and I'm enjoying uh, being with the opportunity to be here because it's uh, uh, one of the things that I get very rarely asked about was uh, when I do my public functions, people ask me, you know, why do you bartend and that sort of thing and what brought you here? And they get that information, and then they drink 12 beer and forget it. Okay. Well, hopefully nobody listening to the podcast right now is in the middle of drinking 12 beers. But if you are, then <laughs> congratulations, because that's a lot of beer and good job. <laughs> but uh, well, let's just get right into it with the traditional first question. What brought you to Pender Island? Well, I first got my feet on Pender Island in 1981 in uh, September, and I was visiting Port Browning Marina with a band that I was a singer slash roadie slash light guy for. Uh, and so we showed up here. Uh, we played a gig at uh, Port Browning Marina. And uh, the lead guitarist was a, uh, a guy on Main Island that hung out with uh, the guy that I worked with who happened to be the rhythm guitarist and also happened to be married to Leela Henshaw, who was, of course, the daughter of Lou Henshaw, who owned Port Browning at the time. So it was pretty well a guaranteed gig. We were going to play and they were going to pay no matter how good we are. But I'd like to think we did well because we played there uh, numerous times a year. So, uh, yeah, the first time we showed up, uh, we got out of the van, set up our equipment and um, played a gig at Port Browning. So 1981. 81. All right. Where were you living prior to this? How did you, he, did you hear about Pender Island? This was your very first time on the island? Well, at the time I, I'd moved from uh, Washington, D.C. I was living in the United States. Uh, I was a Canadian citizen. My father was working with the American Embassy. And uh, I graduated from high school. And at the time, Ronald Reagan was running the show down there. And he actually wanted to uh, make sure that if there was an altercation abroad, uh, that all of the people that were there that weren't citizens were at least registered for the draft. And so you got two letters. And uh, if you didn't sign them and say, yes, I'm registered for the draft, the third one came with guys with black suits who said, sign it or get out. And uh, I had just turned 18. 
And uh, my father looked at me and said, get out. So we graduated high school and we moved to, uh, I moved to Maine Island where my grandmother lived at the time and my sister was living. And uh, so I got out of, uh, graduated high school, just uh, from Mount Vernon High School, just outside of Washington, D.C. After being there for uh, three years, my father was with the uh, American Embassy as a military uh, deputy uh, liaison officer for the uh, Americans, the Canadian side of it. He escorted me out of the country, so to speak. And uh, we flew across Canada and stopped and drank at every bar that we could and uh, ended up on Main Island. And so Main Island is where Leela Henshaw, who was Tattersall at the time, was married to Earl Tattersall. They owned a garage there, the Miners Bayeso. I ended up um, getting a job there after a couple of weeks apprenticing mechanics. And uh, then a band was formed called Rock Bottom, and we practiced. And uh, and before you know it, I w- we were doing the Gulf Islands and Friday Harbor and San Juans and uh, Port Browning was on Pender Island. It was uh, a natural because Leela's mother owned the place. And so Earl had a float plane and uh, we would fly over here and play the gig and go back for Monday and do mechanics. Wow. So your dad encouraged you and basically told you to leave the country for your own own safety to avoid being drafted perhaps well it wouldn't be drafted but it would be registered for the draft so if a draft were to come about in the states at the time uh, that was around the uh, the iranian crisis uh, my father was involved with that in a very <clears throat> a small way but uh we helped get nine of the hostages out of uh iran they um needed passports and they went through the American embassy in Washington, D.C. to get Canadian passports from our embassy. So the Canadian embassy was, you know, complacent with this kind of stuff and they did it. So when you watch that movie Argo, uh, somewhere, uh, I can only say that maybe he touched an envelope that someone signed that went over to do that sort of stuff. But he made us stay home from school that day and and um, just in case something went sideways. So he knew it was coming up and uh, my brother and I were living in the States down there. I was in I think I was in grade 12 or 11, and and he said, don't go to school today. And when we went back, we had candy bars in our locker, and thank you very much. Merci beaucoup, Canada, written on notes stuck in our locker. And uh, my dad said that we should probably wear our Canadian Embassy T-shirts to school, and we did. And and we were mini heroes for a couple of days there. So how did that feel with your dad sort of, you know, influencing you to leave your home, basically? Well, he was a very military guy and um, not much of a hugger, a handshake kind of guy, a salute kind of guy. One of the uh, things about my dad was that he, uh, his acknowledgement of your good deeds was a, a salute and a carry on. And as kids, you know, we, we kind of strive for that. He was, he was a good man, and, uh, but he was, he was military and I was not. I was a long-haired pot smoker who drank too much already by the time I was 14, 15, 16. I was out of control, living at a friend's place in the basement, coming home on the weekends and uh, just finishing high school for the fun of it and to make him happy. And so he couldn't wait to get me out of the country before, you know, I'd already had a drinking and driving. So it was not, uh, I wasn't the the ideal candidate to be living in a foreign country. And he waited 30 years before he told me we had diplomatic immunity that I could have done anything I wanted. And uh, so, but luckily he was smart. He didn't tell me that. So uh, he said that, you know, you can sign up and go fight for the Americans. And I had long hair. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything for uh, of the sort. So 
we made the decision. I graduated on June 11th, and we were out of the country by the 15th. Ironically, my brother, he was one year behind me in school. He's a year and a half younger. And uh, that very next year, Ronald Reagan changed the policy where you didn't have to do that anymore. And he stayed in the States for the rest of his life. He still, he just moved out of there, went to the Philippines now. But that's the difference. That threat of being possibly, well, registered for the draft and possibly being drafted made me move out of the States where my, uh, my brother didn't have that threat and he chose to stay. What is your father's name? He is Major John Glenn Goodman, and um, he passed a few years back, but uh, easily still uh, one of the biggest influences on uh, my life and, and how I live it. Okay, great. Well, let's uh, fast forward to 1981 or go back to 1981 where you said that you uh, landed on Main Island at your grandmother's house. Well, you know, these are years that not only do I not remember very well, I'm not very proud of them either, but we all have a history and... I was uh, 20, 21, 22, I think, at that point, 19, 20, 21, something like that. And uh, I got there with all the great intentions of doing good things. But Main Island is um, a little bit like Pender. It was such freedom after living in the city and um, going to a high school with 3,200 people in it and a graduating class of 1,400 to an island of 700. It was like, that's uh, a big difference. And you felt this. I felt this freedom. And uh, I used it. I, I stayed out late and I, I smashed up cars and ditches and there was no cops. And uh, that was just amazing for me that there was no police. So um, I wasn't bad. I just wasn't, I just didn't follow all the rules. And so uh, I lived in my mother, grandmother's trailer for a couple of months. And then um, she was done with that pretty quick. <laughs> and and uh, my sister who... Her and I didn't have really a, a super relationship at the time. She was living there also. And I alienated myself from her too with my cavorting about and whatnot. I was having fun. I didn't hurt anybody. I just uh, I just like to have fun. And sometimes I didn't hold people's um, best interest in, in, in regard. So needless to say, after three years, and I almost finished my apprenticeship, I had been to Penner Island many times, but don't remember many of those. Again, like I say, it was... The way to keep me sober in those days was to uh, promise to let me fly the float plane. And so that's what I did is I stayed sober to go to gigs if they let me at least fly the plane part of the way. And uh, so that I would go to Pender Island and play a couple of gigs, uh, three or four gigs a year. And and then uh, a bunch of gigs on Main Islands. But that's basically started off on Main Island after high school. And then in 83, they basically, oh, they kicked me off the island. They said, leave you know, walk before we make you run. So I did. Went to college in Ottawa uh, for three years. And uh, back where my parents were living, didn't last a month with them in their basement. Got into uh, even more trouble with booze and, and drugs and whatnot. But I had fun. It, I thought it was fun at the time. And uh, I was working on a Bachelor of Arts uh, in 1986. The guy that I worked for is a mechanic on Main Island, Leela's husband, Earl. Uh, he phoned in March and he said, uh, I was outside with a snowblower in Ottawa. They hollered down to me, hey, there's a phone call for you. So I got to the phone and it was Earl. And he says, hey, we got a job. We're putting an addition on the bar. We got a place for you to stay. And, and you know, it's really great. And uh, after a couple of minutes, he says, I got to go. I left the lawnmower running. And uh, I looked out the window and there was my snowblower running. I said, Earl, I'll be out there in a week. And so uh, a couple of bonfires and a yard sale and I was gone. I got on a bus and went to Vancouver and arrived on Pender Island 
to stay in 1986 after visiting numerous occasions in the years before that. So, From snowblower to lawnmower. Snowblower to lawnmower. Right on. Well, for a lot of people listening, I would imagine that they had not seen Bender in the 80s. And I certainly haven't. So can you maybe speak a little bit to what uh, life was like on Pender Island in the 80s compared to what it is like now? My recollection of it at the time was that um, you could do anything. I drove around with a temporary license plate on my car for a year that was a three-day permit. Uh, then I put it on my motorcycle for another year, and uh, I never had any trouble with it. I used to ride my motorcycle with no helmet and no insurance, uh, no motorcycle license. <laughs> um, so I quit drinking in 86. I got here in 86, and I had uh, trouble right off the bat because I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and I, I know that. And at the time, um, I needed something to shape me up. So I had an incident where I ended up in the hospital in 1987, and so I... I got out of the hospital and I quit drinking and uh, basically saved my life. And so those are the, after that, things became very clear. Uh, in 86, don't remember much of it. I know I went to Expo 86 for a week or so and um, I worked at the bar for, on the docks collecting mortgage. And it was, it was a great life. It was very easy. It was cut off shorts and um, tank tops and sunshine and fun and party and, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun in the 80s. Um, they had a couple of constables on the island. They all knew my name, and uh, I knew theirs, and I knew when they went to sleep. And so that was the kind of thing. You could switch vehicles uh, if you went by the cop's house at Wednesday at 9 o'clock and made sure the car was in the driveway. Then you could swap vehicles and move them from anywhere on the island you wanted to. And uh, so it was that was the kind of thing. It wasn't a lawlessness. It was just a, a freer society, I'll say. It's something like, uh, back then I took a serving at right course, my first year of bartending in 1987. And they asked you, you know, for the questions to get your license to serve people alcohol. They asked you how many beer is enough? And I'm like 14 and 18. And they're like, no, no, no. I go, well, you don't live on Bender Island, man, because that's about what it really was at the time. And you know, are you talking about from four in the afternoon until midnight? Because that is actually probably a good gauge. And so, uh, yeah, it was a little easier back then. I'm not going to say it was, you know, like I say, it wasn't lawless, but it was, it was carefree. And, uh, you talked to, there's a lot of people here that were here for that. And, um, and I think the all agree it was an easier time back then. What's kept you on the Island for all this time? Oh, I would say, uh, forgiveness. People that, uh, that I know now, there's not a hand, there's only a handful that knew me when I drank. And, um, like I said, I wasn't a bad person. I enjoyed having a good time and sometimes it was at other people's expense. So there's a few regrets, but not many. And, uh, anyone who knew me in those days, some of them are still good friends and uh, we laugh about the days. And so I would say that's, um, adaptability of the people in the Island. Um, what I love about this Island is that, uh, if you're a good person at heart and you're and you care, you can live here forever. But if you lack those qualities and there's a meanness to you, somehow, somewhere, you just become non existent and you you move on. And it's I've watched it for years bartending at Port Browning Marina. You'd watch employees come and go and you could see the ones that were gonna stay because 
they truly love the island for what it is, for the beauty of it, and then the beauty of the people. Uh, there's a lot of people on this island that uh, I really care about, and some of them know it, some of them don't. But there's an underlying feeling of people helping people here that would you, you know, just go to any fundraiser, uh, go to the community hall, and just there's so much of a a real tight community. And I lived on Main Island for three years, and they have a great community there too. But it's not the same. And I always tried to I had a difficulty for years trying to put my finger on it. But it, it's it's the uh, the general love of everybody that uh, when you run into someone and they need help, even if you don't know their last name, you can feel that they need help, and they'll help you, or you'll help them. It's interesting. I've had uh, a number of people mention in the podcast already with previous episodes, interviews that I've done, help is a huge thing on this island, that people receive a lot of help. That's kind of interesting. I, I don't necessarily think that's in particular unique to Pender Island, but I've really been touched and impressed with how much that has been spoken to by people. You know, when I, uh, I think about... Um why people come here and uh, some people come here to fix themselves and other people come to find themselves. And um, some people come here to help other people do those things. And uh, every once in a while you run into someone who is here and, you, and they have great joy in going out of their way to help someone else. And they will take the time to do that. And later they will point to someone else that you know and say, that person there was like this, but now they're like this because someone cared for them. Now they're caring for someone else. And it's almost like a, a pass it on kind of deal. You know, when I showed up here in 86, even though I was an alcoholic and I didn't really register as that, I knew I had issues. I knew I had drug and alcohol problems and I came here to party. Truly. I did. And I came here because it was a safe place. I had a good job. I had a job and a place to stay. And when I hit that wall in 1987, people came out to show themselves to me. And some of them would offer me a drink two days after I am definitely not going to drink again. Three months later, they would offer me a drink. And I took it all in stride because I was the kind of person that would quit drinking and then three months later uh, start drinking again. So I was a good quitter. I quit many times. and uh, But this time when it stuck, it was because it was a, <clears throat> a big difference in, in the events that came up to the, the very last time drinking binge I had. But the people that came to me and offered me support, many, many people. And I think they could feel that I was there for to do just that, to, to get better. And so I didn't come here to get better, but I needed, once I did make that decision, the people that helped me, um, I got to say that uh, if it wasn't for Leela Tattersall, uh, I don't think I would be here now. She got me here the first time I was here with uh, her husband and the band. And then as a bartender, she uh, allowed me on my first year anniversary of not drinking to be a bartender at Port Brown and Marina. And her mother, Lou, they were, they were kind and generous to me. And it took me in at Christmas when no one else would. And um, I think they know this, but uh, sometimes I, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, they are truly a part of my family. I'm, Lila has been so good to me. And we don't talk a lot anymore these days. We, but when we do, it's a genuine talk of sincerity and and uh, love and care. And we we hug it out and we remember the old days. And we've gone in different directions, but she totally um, 
made this a worthy endeavor for me to be here, that she opened doors to changing people's minds about who I was and uh, trusting me where no one else would. And uh, that trust is now spread out over 30 years. And um, I'm a very happy person. And um, she helped me get that way in the very beginning. That's beautiful, man. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And you mentioned that you uh, had a job. Actually, sorry, first off, I just want to say thank you for being so open and uh, forthright about talking about your past. And thank you for that. That's most appreciated. And also, you know, you mentioned that you worked as a bartender at Browning. And also, people will see you on the island bartending around the island. And uh, and I've, I've sort of seen you in that position as somebody who uh, does that out of caring that there's a lot of care that you provide in that that role as somebody who's been uh, sober for 30 years. You know, when I when I do this, I like I like having fun. I haven't changed. I just don't drink when I'm having fun now. But uh, it's kind of hard to go to a party and do nothing. So I want to be part of the party and help. Uh, so I do a little bit of DJing, and I like to to MC the baseball games for the kids. And I just like to have fun. I like to see people having fun. It, it makes it brings me joy, you know. And so bartending uh, over uh, the 14 years or so, off and on that I did it at Port Browning. Um, I can't do it behind a bar like the, like now every day because it's, um, it's a very telling place to be, but when there's weddings and when there's, there's, uh, fundraisers, that sort of thing, I go there because alcohol is not the star of the party. It's a, it's just a embellishment of it. It's a little bit of a, um, condiment on the side of the main dish, which would be, you know, the, the wedding and the, and the, the fun from that. Uh, but when I do bartend, I I don't don't like to see people getting super drunk, and uh, I can see I see I see things. I sometimes I see someone go, Ooh, that looks like me, and uh, but it's not very often. And I I'm pretty good at saying no to somebody, and I know because I when people told me no, I didn't like it either. So, but yeah, it's it's a bit of caring. I, I used to. Um, now this will probably catch up with you, but I think the statute of limitations is up on that. But uh, when I bartended at Browning, they used to have a liquor gun and the liquor gun had half ounce shots. And anyone who was drinking doubles, when they come up for the third double, I say, let me buy you half of that. Let me buy the, the second shot. And without them knowing it, I would hit the half ounce button on the liquor gun and I shoot a half in and I'd say, that's for you that you paid for. And then I shoot another half in and then say, that's the one I paid for. And they would still, honestly, only pay for the single shot. And they got the single shot. Yes, my tip went up slightly. <laughs> but uh, I just like to think that instead of drinking 14 ounces of booze that night, uh, they drank 10. And it's not a big difference, but it's it's kind of like, it's do they need it? And um, if they don't notice it, they still have fun. I don't feel like I'm cheating anybody. But that's one way of being... Um, a little bit caring about someone who's having a good time and watching them as they have their good time and uh, helping them that way. All right. Well, maybe shifting gears here a little bit up into the present right now. What, what's what been on your mind lately, Gary? What are you thinking about these days? What's, uh, what's driving you? What are you feeling passionate about these days? Well, you know, anyone who... <laughs> Anyone who knows me, um, I'm I'm a very happy guy. I've got a great girl and uh, got a great place, and uh, I have a really good job and my many jobs, and I choose them all. So my plate is full, and it's full of everything I've asked for, and I've never been so happy in the last five years or so. 
uh, been lots of changes in my life. And so Pender is one of those places. It's uh, when I say, you know, forgiveness, it's, it's also adaptable. So I can say 10 years ago that I used to eat huge steaks and uh, go out and play hockey. And if someone gave me some lip, I'd want to, you know, give them a shot in the head. And, and uh, so I was, you know, just running on, um, on that kind of wavelength, but now it's not that way. I don't eat meat anymore, and I can't put any finger on it. It's not you know, my, not Nancy. She's she's been a vegetarian since I've known her. And but the thing is, um, I guess I've just changed my mode of thinking. So Pender's allowed me to do that, and uh, I just truly love what I'm doing. And I'm thankful and grateful that uh, every time I get up in the morning, I say thank you for letting me live here and. Pender Island, and whenever I'm in front of a microphone at a outing of something, I always, you know, ask the people, "Can you think of another person, another place that's uh, you know, like this that's so worthy?" And uh, it beats out 99.9 percent of the earth on a place to live, with uh, the people and uh, the beauty of it, and just the overall feeling of it. So uh, I really think that if I were to say my state of mind right now, and in the last little while, has been. I'm very grateful to be here and happy to be here. And I find myself feeling how lucky I really am that I've got this place uh, in 2000. When the Y2K was coming out, I bartended on Main Island just in case, just in case. And uh, I had a winter job over on Main Island, uh, or on, on the mainland, sorry. And I would bartend in the summer as a hobby job at Port Browning. But in 2000, I, I gave up on the mainland. I pulled my union ticket out. I was an industrial pipe layer, and uh, I kept places on uh, Pender in the mainland. And uh, I moved back here full-time in 2000 again after being half a year for the 90s because I realized this is the place to be. And, you know, if there's ever going to be a zombie apocalypse, this is the place to be. Yeah, where zombies can't swim, as far as I know. It depends what version of zombies you see, but usually swimming zombies are quite unusual. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I would imagine. <laughs> All right. So you mentioned talking about uh, emceeing at the ballpark. I've seen you do that. Actually, I was I was given a tip to go watch you perform at the ballpark because you uh, you do the announcing for the kids before they go up. You uh, say their number and their names and... Uh, it was pretty rad to get to see that. Uh, what what sort of a thrill do you get out of doing that? I think that part of it is I played baseball when I was a kid. And when I did it, I was living in uh, Philadelphia at that time. And so they have a much bigger system down there and, and everything's bigger. So, you know, they had perfect uniforms and uh, home and away games, night games and that sort of thing. But they didn't have the guy calling out the names. And uh, it was almost like if you were... If you would just get to 12 years old, then you could have your name called out. And um, I don't know what started it, but I, was, I love Danny Martin. He's one of my favorite guys. That guy gives all the time. Him and Kevin Marsden, they give so much to those kids, and they really care. And and so uh, I was helping them get the field together uh, six or seven or eight years ago, and and they had a PA sitting inside of the shack, and I just asked, "Hey, man, can I? You know, what do you do with it?" And, and they say, "Oh, they they make announcements sometimes." So I brought my own gear, put it all together, and I think it's watching the kids when you call their name, and I give them nicknames sometimes, and you know things like um, Nigel the Nuke Watson when he was pitching, and you could just see the glory in their eyes of wow. 
And, you know, the biggest thing I could do was make a mistake and mispronounce their name. And mid-swing, they would just stop and go, that's not my name. And so they paid attention. It made them feel good. And the kids loved it. And uh, it gave a little bit of an officialdom to the game. It made them, uh, yeah, yeah, they're there to have fun. But they also sang the national anthem. And I would always drop the microphone down so they could sing it in unison as a team. Or we'd have special guests show up and do it. But it was just to have fun, and uh, the kids have fun, and they love to hear their name in the big lights, and and the parents, uh, they get a bit of glow of themselves. You know, you, you call out their kid's name, and they yeah, that's my boy, and, or my girl, or whatever. And and now it's so funny. It's, I've been doing it so long that, you know, not only are those kids not playing baseball here anymore, but they're driving, and they're, they're out of high school, and Tasia Baxter was working at the bakery last year, and I... And, didn't even recognize her. And I thought, oh my God, I'm getting old. But, you know, I'm going to do it again this year. If there's baseball, I love calling it. The kids love it. The um, uh, A team from Sydney had two home games, and one of them was in the playoffs, and they chose to play it here on Pender because they had so much fun. And, uh, you know, the people that live around the ballpark are really tolerant because I blast Danny Martin's favorite song, which I made up because it's not his favorite song, but it's you know, Thunderstruck by ACDC. It just is a great cranking tune. And I like to hear it every game. So I just say it's his favorite song. He just looks at me and smiles and nods because Danny's that way. He's, yeah, whatever you want to do, Gary, just play it. And so uh, they came out and they played their home game. They gave up a home game to come play on Pender so they could uh, have their kids' names called out. And I felt really, really, um, that was really something for me because it made me feel like what I was doing was worth it. And, and uh, you know, of course, I talk everybody into handing over their 50-50 money. If they win the 50-50, I go, so we have a record this year of seven 50-50s that have donated the money back to the ballpark, and we sure hate to break that this year, so whoever wins. And, you know, I make sure uh, I make sure we all have fun, and that's what it is about that, I think. Right on. Well, you mentioned about donating 50-50 money back towards the ballpark and – I've seen you uh, at the hall for a hall fundraiser, win a 50-50 yourself and give uh, the money back to the fundraiser for the hall. And we've talked on occasion about uh, supporting charities and it seems to be something that you're passionate about, about uh, giving back to other people. And yeah, I just wanted to hear you speak to that for a little bit because uh, it's been inspiring to uh, be in conversation with you and hear about that. And I just want to hear a little bit more about how you feel about that. You know, Chris, I think sometimes um, I allow myself to take for granted where I live and, and the people that live here. I work at uh, Joe's place once in a while, helping him keep his back-end kitchen together. And uh, I see um, people sneaking in to pick up meals for wheels at the bakery. And so there's so many hidden people volunteering and helping other people. And uh, you can only do take so much of it. So... Um, I can't, I just don't know what made me do it, but I just started thinking I should give back and it was years and years ago. And so I try and try and do that, but I want to make sure I'm having fun. I don't want to force myself. So I I like doing the parking for the fall fair. Uh, Doug Keating got me involved with that. He did that for many years and, and it's fun. You get to meet all the people. It's exciting for one day and it's such a great thing. And and so as the charities go by now, you know, I'm, the last five years, I've, something's happened to me. I don't know what it is. I um, can't put a finger on it, but in my, my mind, the way I think is different. And so money's not a big thing. Uh, 
I've got lots of money. We're all millionaires. We just got to go out and get it. It's it's in escrow for all of us. So uh, as soon as that frame of mind came about, lots of money. And so I don't do things for money anymore. And so it doesn't mean that much to me, but it does mean some things get done and some things don't. So um, that one particular time, that's leadership by example. I mean, why would I talk to people about giving back their 50-50 money and not do it myself? And so I, I try and do that. And I try and bartend for fuss about the bus and whatever. I get lots of calls for it. I very rarely say no because it's, there's always something worthy. Um, I just did the Zoo Islander and I was talking with uh, Angie Bones and she did such a great job. Worked so hard to get all this stuff organized up and um, a lot of work involved, a lot of volunteers there. And I tried to get my favorite charity now, which is uh, so um, Charity Water. And you can find it on YouTube. There's a video for it. It's charitywater.org, I believe. And uh, they give uh, 100% of the donations to the effort for clean water for kids in Africa. And I know there's water in, in Canada that needs to be uh, found for Indigenous peoples too. But no, I, I watched this video in particular. My girlfriend, Nancy, picked it up for me and I watched it. And so I've changed my um, charitable donations over from the British Columbia uh, Cancer Research R&D Division last couple of years because of Brian Nord. He was a great guy that I love very much. And and so I was donating my Robbie Burns uh, bartending money towards that cause. And this year, I, I just switched over to this Water for Charity cause. So now I make sure that uh, a portion of, of my tips, uh, I volunteer for the charity at hand, but the, the money that I get, I get to make a difference. And I said to Angie, uh, I charged her some money for that keg, even though it was donated. So I could at least get that money to the charity that uh, really means something to me. And that's the the water charity. It may change again in the future. But right now, I feel that that's the best bang for the buck as far as helping people. And, uh, you know, we live on Pender Island. And if you want to talk about a charity on Pender Island, yes, there's lots of places where money could go to help things out. But we're all drinking water that's good for us. And so I'd like to think that finding good water for someone else that isn't so lucky as us holds a higher priority sometimes. So Cool. Thank you for sharing. Moving into a different area here. We talked about your father earlier, and I'm always curious about people's parents. But I just wanted to ask about your mom. Tell us a little bit about your mom, Gary. My my mother, she's a French-Canadian there, and uh, she... Uh, She's a very great person to me. She's um, her, my father and, and uh, my mother met and she could not speak English and he could not speak French. Uh, but I do believe there was only, you know, my, my sister was born shortly after they got married. So I believe that they knew a few words like Polyvua Hama Hama. I'm not sure. I just know that my mom is really, uh, she's uh, living in Comox now. She's 79 she just quit smoking cigarettes. So there's no question where I get it from. You know, I drank and smoked and, and swore. And my mother does still as uh, she quit smoking, but uh, she's a great, great lady. Everyone's got different things. Right. So uh, my mother lives with her, her heart. Uh, so she's, we talk every week and uh, I love her. And, and I always say to her that, you know, if, if she gets, you know, where she wants to move down here into an assisted living place, I'd be great. But she is not, moving into my house. Um, I guess some people can live with their mothers and some people can't. I, my sister and I personally have a 55-hour limit and um, and then we have to get out of Dodge. So 
she's a great woman. I love her. Uh, but I love her for 55 hours at a time. <laughs> why 50, why for 55 hours? Well, it used to be 72. We discovered that was too long. So, um, we all grew up in different time frames, you know, and when I lived in the States, uh, we can pretend if you want, but in Virginia, in the, in the 80s, there was racism. And uh, it, it's, you know, we're so politically correct now. I know 6,000 jokes and I can't tell, I can only tell seven of them to Nancy who does not put up with any guff. She won't have any derogatory statements about any other race or gender or anything else. I can't, everything's got to be 100% clean. And so all the jokes that I ever heard that, you know, to somebody, even myself sometimes were funny. Um, they're really not. And as I get older, I'm starting to get that. And uh, my mother is, has not gotten that yet. And so whether she ever does get out of that situation or not, but my my sister and I make efforts to curb her her language and her lack of editor, shall we say. And uh, it works because she wants to spend time with us as she gets older. She's a very, she's a, a very caring, caring person, but she's hidden underneath a, um, a callous bit of thorns there sometimes with her, her um, vocabulary. Being French, she thinks it's okay to say, uh, you know, excuse my French, but, and I go, no, no, we're not going to do that because that's not French. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's interesting. They're interesting times that we're living in because it feels as if uh, political correctness is a constantly shifting ground that we're standing on. And that uh, I think we all have to decide for ourselves what we believe is appropriate and what should be spoken and what shouldn't be. But I, I sometimes feel with people from a different generation, it must be really difficult to have lived your life expressing yourself in a certain way and expressing humor in a certain way. And then quite rapidly that gets altered. And then everybody's telling you, you can't do that anymore. I, I think that would be a pretty difficult place to be in. I agree. And I think that there's, it doesn't, it's not just older generations. It's, there's generations equal to mine. Um, yeah, okay. Maybe that is older generation now. You know, there's uh, certain pockets of people and it's not, you can't say they're bad. They're great people, actually. But they think some things that are funny. Um, you know, I go through with uh, Nancy's an excellent gauge of political correctness. Because um, I had a, an experience on um, July 1st this year. Uh, the Legion asked me to be a guest speaker. So I wrote a, a little speech. I was honored. I truly was. I was honored. I got up in front of the driftwood in there and I, and I, I went through this thing and I, I worked it. I really worked on that speech. I worked to be um, objective and uh, lighthearted and funny and expound the wonders of my country of pride and of, uh, uh, it was entitled the C word and it was about compassion and caring and, um, and compelling and, and uh, challenging and all the great things that a country should be to somebody. And I really felt good about that. But I had been asked by Paul Petrie at the same time on the same day later in the day. So I gave that speech at about 1130 or noon. And then I went and set my PA equipment up at the school for a recon reconciliation project that he had going where they had a salmon bake in the ground with uh, the indigenous people and, and great ceremonies. And there was a, one of the ceremonies that was there was the blanket ceremony. I'd never heard of it before. Um, I uh, honestly... Uh, I was, uh, I was astounded by the things that I felt and learned that day. They asked me to be part of that blanket ceremony and anyone who's never done a blanket ceremony as a reconciliation with the indigenous people, I wholeheartedly say 
you don't know your country until you've done that. Because now my views on what my country is and what we are as people have changed. And um, I will be forever changed by that event. Uh, um, I look forward to it. They're going to do it again. It's an unveiling of, for me, just personally, of shame. Uh, I, I know what m my forefathers did, uh, even if they're not connected directly to me genetically. Uh, I know how we got to this point. And when I realized just how that happened, I was shocked and ashamed for my, for my country. And now we did this. Um, I was, I still to this day um, offer, I still work with Paul when I can. And I volunteer when I can. And I've actually made some indigenous ties there with the entrepreneurial ship they've got there, buying their products, trying to get their products into some of the stores around here. Um, it's, it's time that, you know, if Gord Downey has a, a great um, movie out that everyone I think should, that lives in Canada that loves their country, and loves people in general, if they watch that, they'll get an idea of, of uh, how we got here. And then they'll get an idea of what we can do to make things better for everybody. Would you be willing to describe what the blanket ceremony was like? Yeah. Um, you know, at first, I everyone brought a blanket with them. And they uh, lay them down out on the grass. And it, it covers probably 100 by 150, depending on how many people are there. And it's organized. This is it's not just um, not willy-nilly. This has been thought about. Uh, these uh, The organizers of this, um, they had scrolls. And the scrolls, and they, they had pieces of paper, different color. They had a blue and a yellow and, uh, and a white. And so let's say we had 100 people out on those blankets. They were all touching, so it was a big square. And everyone starts moving around because it was described as Turtle Island. And everyone starts walking around as these people, as the um, the readers read the story of the indigenous people when they first started off in North America and Canada. And then uh, at one point they would say uh, a law that came and passed the British North American Act, so on and so forth. And unfortunately, I don't have the details of it, but I remember being intensely listening to it at the time. And uh, then they would they would ask you to stop and fold up your blankets because that's the land that was taken away from the indigenous tribes. And then they would say, anyone with a white card, you got to go because you were infected with smallpox by blankets given to us and uh, by so and so. And and it's it's really it seemed to me and I very factual and chronologically they went through the history of Canada. And at the end, there were so few of us walking around, and it was really hard for me because I was walking around. I didn't get one of the cards. So I wasn't one of the kids put in one of the schools. I wasn't one of the people that were um, diseased with smallpox. And, and uh, there was a few other things or, you know, uh, some of the other um, ramifications of, of living the um, white man's life, so to speak. But at the end of it, there's so few people walking on so, so few blankets at first, I thought it was in, I kind of thought it was kind of corny. They said, we have tissue boxes for those of you that start crying. And uh, I started crying. Couldn't believe it. I started crying. Wow. It was so real. It was so easy to see the shameful way we got to be where we're at. And I used to say shameful. For me, this is my thoughts. And I mean, it's not everyone can see it that way, but I never thought of it that way. I never really... Um, I never really thought 
about how we got here and how what we did to get here. Here being this time in our existence as Canadians in North America on this land. And, uh, you know, now every time you think about an archaeological dig, you know, why did they, how did they go? Where did they go? Why did they go? The answer's there in that blanket ceremony. And you said that was on Canada Day that happened. That was on Canada Day. And I got the, uh, it was both sides of the coin that day. I came home and uh, I was a changed person just in that area. And, you know, I totally was not ready for it. Totally not ready for it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's a part of our very recent history. And it's uh, obviously something that's becoming more and more at the forefront of uh, our education and in, in our media as of late. And for the best, it seems like. You know, I think that uh, one of the great things about Pender Island is that it's a microcosm of the world, of the universe, maybe of uh, awakening and um as we're so lucky here we have clean water and, and, and organic fields we can grow food in and and uh, you know the fairies could stop tomorrow we'd survive we would survive we would and there's so many places that aren't that lucky that wouldn't be you know it'd be a very difficult thing they'd be survival by fighting here we could do it we could do it living communally you know and if we can take our growth here and that reconciliation project, if that was even just one seed in a field that goes on across Canada and every province has a few seeds like that, the recognition of um, brotherhood that we would have with our fellow human beings, I think truly that uh, we could make a difference that would set us apart from any other country in the world. We have compassion. And and it's now being acknowledged. It's now we're awakening to it. Um, if I wish everybody that has a chance would take the would just do the blanket ceremony, pay attention. It's it's about loving your fellow humans. It doesn't matter what color. It doesn't matter any of their anything else. It's it's about being compassionate to the person next to you. And if everyone's compassionate to the person next to them, that means everyone everywhere all the time. And that is what I think is the beginning of this reconciliation. We're saying, look, we recognize this has happened. We want to be kinder. Right on. Excellent. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. It's uh, part of the fun of doing this podcast is to get to hear really interesting stories like that and find out about events that uh, really touch people's lives. And uh, thank you for sharing that. And just to touch back in with something earlier is that you knew one of the questions I was going to ask you was uh, who's given you help along the way uh, was the answer that you provided with Miss Tattersall. That was your answer to that question? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And, I mean, I, and I gave us some thought. You gave me some heads up on I this. I did. Absolutely. And yeah. so, uh, you know, and I, I was talking with uh, Nancy and I would love to say it would be her, but, uh, you know, she's part of me. So it's, it's uh, that goes without saying. But uh, no, really, I mean, I don't even know if Leela gets it. I don't even know if um, uh, if she knows, but she was so kind to me when I was um, unceremoniously asked to leave Maine Island. Everyone but her was glad to see me go. And when I left, she gave me extra money and a warm jacket, put me on a bus, and I went to Ottawa. And um, then she was the first one to invite me back with open arms and tell people it's okay to trust this guy when 
truly, if you had just seen some of my actions, you would have found me the most unlikely candidate to trust, even though I was. But my actions did not portray that. You know, she believed in me, and, and she she gave me uh, uh, she gave me second chances when I needed them. And uh, I think everyone deserves a second chance. And now, as I live my life, I believe in that. So, uh, yeah, Leela is the uh, the person that has helped me the most here. I think. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Having spent all the time that you've spent on this island, I'm sure you've uh, encountered a great story or two on Pender. Just uh, where we've got we've got some time left. I just want to throw it over to you to see uh, what you have to say about uh, interesting stories you want to share with everybody here today. Well, Chris, now this is getting into a place where I can get in trouble, which is my favorite place. So, um, you know, there's a few people like I uh, first, Chris, I want to say thank you for having this. But I'd say that um, if this podcast is, is, is truly something you want to uh, pursue, there are a list of characters out there with history far deeper and far more colorful than mine on this island, that I am a mere quarter inch to the onion of this island. There are people like uh, John and Jamie Bradley, um, uh, Ian Rossmith, Lou Henshaw, um, Spaldings, Octrolonies, and uh, they, they would be glad to share. And they have some of the great stories, you know, Rob's story. I, at one point, I was going to write a book. And I used to keep uh, some index cards at the bar. And I would uh, talk to people at the bar and write down their little little notions and keep them. And I was going to write the uh, the book was going to be called Losing Control because Lou owned the bar. And sometimes it was in control and sometimes it wasn't. But, it, you know, it was a play on words. Lou is writing a book right now, and I can't wait to see it. I actually, I'm going to go down and talk to her at her house and see if uh, I can help her in any way. But uh, uh, she's a great character. She's got a, a really good memory, and she's very colorful. So I think that uh, if you don't uh, at least investigate the possibility of having her on this podcast and a few others, that uh, you'll you'll be missing the, the the prime of the prime. I'm I'm a I'm a mere weed in the garden, my friend. I've heard Lou tell some stories of the old Browning days at uh, the Speakeasy, which is a monthly gathering where people tell stories and uh, personal essays and fiction and and Lou's told some beauties. I was really impressed with uh, every time I've seen her get up and tell some uh, stories from old Browning days stuff. It's been pretty great. She cares. She does. And, uh, you know, everyone's got their different sides and their different ideas of, of uh, who Lou is. And uh, I've seen the great side of her, you know, when you're an employer uh, and you have people coming and going and people living on the property, then sometimes they're by themselves, you know, and many times she's opened the doors on Christmas day Thanksgiving, put out free food, free drink in her bar so that the people that had no place to go had a place to go. And they're wonderful times and the real love in the room. And that's what the Hobo Christmas was about at the tree, the oak tree, you know, people that were like a little bit of misfits, but they would say, okay, well, you know, well, let's get together and have our, our, our singular Christmas plurally over at the oak tree. And, you know, guys like, um, you know, Dan Bingham, uh, he helped organize that. Just great fun. And, and so people that had no place to go have a place to go. And she facilitated that and she did it readily. She used to go and buy all the crabs off the crab boat and have a big crab feast on the table and spread the newspapers everywhere. 
And uh, she wouldn't care about how much it cost. It was about, was it the right thing to do? And it's not, oh, she's not always like that. But you know what? That's in her. That's there. That's That's the redeeming qualities that made her so loved or unloved, depending on where you're at. She was, she had that quality to her. And uh, she looked after people. Um, you know, she used to have comedy nights back in the eighties and I used to just crack on her boy. You know, I, I, I basically, um, uh, I said to her, we love her as much as we hate her sometimes. And that's a lot. Yeah. The hobo Christmas, I've never attended one because I'm always off islands on Christmas time because, uh, both my wife and, uh, my family live in the lower mainland, but I've always seen uh, signs up for the hobo Christmas and talk to people about it afterwards. And it definitely, I get the feel that it's something that really has meant a lot to a lot of people over the years. It's a unifying, um, a unifying factor at uh, a time of year when people need that, I think. And uh, I don't go there. I, I've been there a couple of times just to go, stop in and say hi, uh, you know. But uh, from the people I meet, it makes a big difference to them. And the ability to do that, lose the first one who said it's okay. You can use the property and and you know donated things to it and food and that so yeah i think it's it's a it's a worthy thing that people have a place to go uh when everyone else is so happy and home and with family and if you have no family that um at least you have an option right on well just to touch on what you said earlier about a lot of uh classic pender stories and that's great. I I hope to hear them. And uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing the old stories of Pender also mixed in with the new stories as well, too, about, you know, I mentioned to you earlier about the person who's lived here for six months and what drew them to come to this island because we're all sharing this experience together. And I'm so curious as to uh, what it is that lures people in and keeps them so passionate about being in this place and you know and you're right I, and as a bartender uh, i for years i say how'd you get to pender and a lot of people say well you know when i was a kid we used to come visit the cabin and now you know and it's almost like a little addiction you, you can only visit so many times before you go man i should live here i really should live here it's, it's there's lifestyles and if that suits your lifestyle then that usually happens and, um, you know, I'm no different, really, because in 1968, my grandmother bought a cabin on Main Island, and we used to go there. I was five years old. That's how I discovered the, the Gulf Islands, visiting my grandmother in the summertime and when we weren't living somewhere else. And um, so my sister moved there in 1979 from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. She graduated, and then she moved to Main Island. And so it seemed natural when I finished my high school to go visit my sister and my grandmother. I was supposed to visit there and then go to college. But that connection usually is, oh, we had a supper cabin there. We visited a couple of times. And, and then, you know, and now the house is, is moving into the family where it's ours now. And, you know, yeah, there's a, I, I mentioned to Paul Hampson. I said, Paul, you should try this podcast thing out. I said, it's easy. You know, I said, tell your story. But you got to be kind of like, you know, watch what you say. And you got to try and be um objective and stuff like this. He goes, Oh, there'll be trouble there, man. All the time. So you're going to get characters there and you're going to get their view and their, their, which is what you're looking for perspective, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I think guys like that. And, uh, there's a few guys, there's, um, one guy that lives in, um, magic Lake and he used to be an airline pilot. Uh, Finn is his name. And, uh, he remembers walking to magic Lake on a dirt road. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in 1965, it was the biggest, apparently. Again, this is what I hear. It was the biggest 
suburban or suburban enclave in Canada. Right. Yeah, I have heard that too. Yeah. And so Magic Lake used to be a cow field where cows got stuck and died. I mean, they used to call it Dead Cow Slough or something like this, you know? That's what I heard, Dead Cow Slough. And so there's those old stories there. But when Finn tells me about walking, you know, you used to be able to cut across Magic Lake before it was Magic Lake. Nice. You know, I mean, that's very, very cool stuff. You can still, used to be able to drive from behind Gary Dudley's to Roe Lake to get to the ferry. used to be the road. That used to be the road. And it's, if you have a good enough 4x4, four four, of course, you can't try it now. But back in the 80s, you could. <laughs> <laughs> As you mentioned earlier, you could get away with a lot <laughs> more in the 80s. There's probably a couple of pickups back there. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, yeah, we're nearing the end. This is so totally zipped by. I was just looking at the time here and we're, we're reaching the end here. But I just wanted to uh, give the last word to you if there's anything else that you just wanted to um, speak to and let people know. Anything that uh, you just want to share at the end with us here, Gary? Well, Chris, I think this is a great endeavor you're doing here. And it's, a, you know, if you think about how the indigenous people of all, all over the place it was word of mouth. That's how you taught people things. And that's where you got history from. So I think this would be a form of that. And my hat's off to you about that. And uh, of course, and you pick the right guy, I could talk forever. So, I mean, and all your, anyone listening to this can go, yeah, I've heard that before. Holy cow. So Chris, thank you for having me out. I really appreciate it. And um, I'd be glad to um, help you in any way with this if you need any. Thank you so much, Gary. All right. Well, there you have it. And in honor of that interview, I decided I would come down to Port Browning. So it's a Friday night and I just stepped out of the pub and came down to the water. And I'm looking out at a super still, quiet evening in the early spring. It's probably about 11, 12 degrees out right now. We're standing here. I also get to see some bioluminescence. So just kicking some pebbles out onto the water here. It glows. Amazing. You can hear the frogs in the background croaking. You can hear the sound of a car driving on Razor Point Road. There are lights coming from the marina. Many boats out on the water. And Port Browning has been the scene of many an amazing evening, which I'm sure we'll get into on this podcast. But on this evening, it's super quiet. There are some clouds. There are some stars. And there is me on the beach. A little bit tipsy. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Until next time.